Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Ann Shippey is an expert in mold toxicity and mold exposure. She is certified in functional medicine and has a doctorate in medicine from the University of Texas. And today, guess what? We're going to chat about all things mold. And welcome. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. You know, our listeners might be aware that w- one of the, the things I am petrified of is Lyme disease. And number two on that list is toxic mold. And that's going <laughs> to, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, and I'm so happy to increase the awareness on this topic because so many people don't realize that's the root cause of their illness. So I'm really happy to help your audience sort that out. How common is toxic mold? Yeah, you know, it's so much more common than I ever would have thought. Gluten sensitivity and celiac disease are so much more common than the um, traditional thinking. Unfortunately, with the way that the building codes have gone in the last 20 years, we are, you know, to be, well, really even 30 years, to be more energy conscious. A lot of times we're creating an ideal environment to mold for mold to grow. And then a lot of the incoming materials to even create our homes with mold spores in them. So all they need is a little bit of moisture and they're off and running and creating their families. So it sounds like it's becoming more common and your hypothesis is it's because of the materials we're now using to build. Is that correct? Right. So the The combination of the materials and the way that we're building houses very tight, keeping the moisture in, not letting houses breathe. And then a lot of condensation happens in air conditioning systems. And then unfortunately, the quality of the homes, the workmanship, especially here in Central Texas, but I'm seeing it across the country and in my patients wherever they are, you know, building a home is a craft. And a lot of times that whole craft of like, how the flashings get installed for the windows and the chimneys and the really making sure that all the pipes are sealed and that the drainage is going properly around the house and not into the house. So it's a lot of different aspects of the, you know, just really paying attention to the quality of the building as well. So how does the layperson go about understanding if mold is present? You know, how, how do we go about, I'm not a contractor. I, I love architecture. I, mm, me too. How does the average person go about that process? Yeah, it's very, it, it, there's some, some pretty intricate de- details to pay attention to because a lot of times people will seek out, you know, have the person who's looking at their AC units get way in or the plumber coming in. And I think a lot of times these trades are so used to seeing mold that they'll dismiss the concern that people have when they're reaching out. So, and then even a lot of the mold inspectors, they're not using the latest technology and testing. They're doing the old fashioned air testing where a lot of the spores and a lot of the mycotoxins are not going to show up in those samples. So it, it, there are time and place to do the air sampling, but most of the time, the best way to get an answer on, is there mold in my building is to do a wipe and get, actually get dust. 
and then check it both for the DNA of the organisms. A lot of times it's called an ERMI test, but we're not really interested in the ERMI score because a lot of times that's an algorithm that the results are run through. But you want to look at the results, what mold DNA is actually present in the results. And then there are also companies that will do an actual mycotoxin test. So the mycotoxins are the toxins that some molds make. And so ERMI, can you just spell that ERMI test? Uh A-R-M-I. Quick Google search and find something. Right. And there are several tests, companies out there that do a good job about it. And I do have a handout on my website on mold and mycotoxins. So a lot of that information is in, in that handout. Some of the different companies that I like to use and that kind of thing are all listed there. And then, you know, sometimes you don't even have to go to the point of testing. If you've had like a bathroom leak or a mold or a roof leak, a dishwasher leak, ice maker leak, any of those kinds of things, and you haven't gotten it dried, like completely dried, the drywall, wood floors, all that kind of thing, within 24 to 48 hours, there's a high probability that there is mold there. And one of the mistakes that I see people making especially after finding this out, is that they'll go in and do it themselves. They'll open up the walls or the floors themselves. And unfortunately, what that'll do is just move the mold spores and the mycotoxins into the environment. So it's really important to have somebody that knows what they're doing because these are such toxic substances. So you really want to set up containment with plastic walls and and actually protect yourself with masks and suits so that you don't get a big mycotoxin exposure. So it's really important to, even if you're like, oh yeah, I know that roof leak probably has some mold behind there, that spot on the ceiling that I let go and didn't get um, investigated right away or dried out right away, probably has some mold. Get somebody that, that knows how to handle the toxic materials and discard them properly and all that kind of thing. You know, you mentioned leaks and look, leaks happen. You know, everyone has had some sort of leak at some point in in their home, but I think it's important to note my understanding. I think what you're alluding to, it has to be a significant amount of water and it has to go untreated or, or, or not dried within a extensive time period. Like if you have a little leak, no big deal, but if it's something where there's a large amount of, of water or moisture over an extended period of time that's not dry, then you're going to have a problem. Yeah, that's a miss. That's sometimes some of these molds are so toxic. It just takes a very small little patch of mold to make people very sick. My first run in with mold was a, a flashing on a chimney that when it would rain in a certain direction, a little water would come in and down through the attic and then actually along the wall in my son's bedroom and then down through mine. And it was never enough to really show through the paint. And so it took a lot of detective work to actually find the mold behind the wall. But it, you know, walls breeze. So the mycotoxins were really getting into his body, his little body and mine. So you're leading to my next question. I think of mold being present. There's the obvious and the not so obvious. So like obvious being significant water damage from a significant event, if you will, you know, huge leak flood. Okay. Probably going to have mold or more, I say not probably more likely. What are some of the not so obvious? Yeah. You know, it's been 
just tragic some of the things that I've seen, you know, people building new houses and the flashing around the windows not getting done cro- properly. I've seen a bunch of those cases in the last 10 years where, you know, it's a little bit of rain and it goes into the to the wall, hits the drywall because of the, you know, moisture barrier, not keeping the, the moisture out. And then there's uh, mold all around the windows, again, without much of a sign inside the house. You know, sometimes people will put a little, you know, put a hole in a, a water line and not realize it and have a little slow leak there. Another big one is just the, how good is the moisture barrier around uh, a shower or a bathtub? It can be just little leaks where you know, just the integrity wasn't done perfectly and actually then get behind the showers or the bathtub. So it's a lot of times what I see are the subtle things, the obvious things people hopefully are starting to realize that they need to fix right away. But, and then there are the leaks that happen during construction that don't get disclosed to the owners. And sometimes even the, you know, can have a significant amount of uh, mold coming in on the the beams to build the house. So, so this is interesting because someday, or or maybe not after this conversation, my wife and I, Colleen, have, have always dreamt of maybe building a house someday, and doing it in a sustainable, efficient way, using the best, most sustainable materials that are somewhat mold resistant. You know, concrete, tile, stone. And now I'm listening to you and it sounds like building a home from, not that many people do this, but like what I want to pause there in terms of materials, in terms of the construction, I'm shocked that this is a possibility. How do you avoid it if you're going to go build a home or if you're looking for the best materials that are going to protect you from? Yeah, I think you've got the right strategy, like using as much steel and glass as you can, having big overhangs over the windows so that... You know, a, a lot of water doesn't actually hit them. And then partner with somebody who's really familiar with mold and construction during the construction, like actually test the w- windows to see if they leak before you put up the drywall. How would one do that? I'm curious. How would one, including people uh, change what yeah, building you could, a, yeah. <laughs> you get out with a, a high power hose and spray the windows down just like you, you know, a driving a storm would do that, that kind of, you know, here, at least here in Texas, we get these storms sometimes where it seems like the oh, it's yeah. just pouring water out of the sky, right? So that you, it's like a stress test, right? You stress it to the max there, and then you just have somebody come in and double check the builder and the contractors during construction for things like the water, and then you put in moisture detectors. It's a perfect time to actually to put those moisture detectors in to see if you know your garbage disposal develops a leak or the um, air conditioning pan. And then I really think it's a great idea to get somebody involved that really understands the heating and air conditioning in the particular part of the country that you're in and make sure that you have really good humid humidity control. Like you really want to try to keep your humidity less than 50% in your house. And here, I'm going to just kind of segue a little bit. I One of my best friends who... <laughs> who knows where I stand on mold, happened to mention to me that she was going to leave her AC off when she was leaving her house for a couple months this summer. And that's a huge mistake. Like she was just trying to be energy conservation. But in the type of heat and humidity that we have in Texas, especially, 
she was going to end up with a huge mold problem when she got home. So it's not just even the, you know, having the construction done really well and monitoring the humidity and keeping the humidity as low as possible that's comfortable for you. But then don't do something silly like turn off the AC or turn it so high up that the humidity is going to run high and the temperature is going to be high because mold can really grow on about anything if the spores are there when it gets that hot and humid in a closed environment. Back to materials, are there, you know, concrete, steel, glass, anything else come to mind that people should be aware of when either building a home or renovating or just looking at the materials in their current? Yeah, I think plaster walls are a little less likely to mold and then also something called magnesium oxide board. And then I think, you know, it's kind of smart to put the cabinets up off the floor, like have the hanging ca cabinets rather than the floor cabinets, because if you have a leak in those, then you know, that's more likely to run behind and have, I've seen this with kitchens where, you know, the kitchen sink had a leak and it just ended up, you know, wicking up the wall behind the cabinets. And going back to the, you know, the hot spots, if you will, seems like the bathroom is a place. Oh, for sure. So yeah, so really make sure that the water's contained. I'm not a fan of wallpaper. Do not put up wallpaper in a bathroom. That's just a place to collect humidity and cause a problem there. And then definitely put the moisture detectors in so that you know there's been a leak or a slow leak in the cabinet. And in terms of, I, I thought it was interesting what you said about the wallpaper. Are there other less obvious no-nos, if you will, whether it's wallpaper in the bathroom like little things we're, we're doing and not aware that may have an impact. Yeah. You know, when a friend of mine just built a house thinking it was going to be a mold-free house and one of the flaws that happened in the design phase was to put the laundry room in the middle of the house. So then the exhaust for the dryer went up and then o over quite a long space and that caused a lot of condensation to happen and actually caused mold. So, you know, even just thinking about how you're going to ventilate a dryer and having it have as immediate an exit as possible so that it doesn't run through, you know, multiple curves and long pathways with hot, humid air that could then hit cold air and condense even. Interesting. And I'm assuming ground floor if, if one has a house, it's better on the ground floor than second floor. Absolutely. And if you can just even have a one story house, because obviously, you know, water going downhill. The other thing that's really tricky are basements. You know, those have to be, you know, really carefully done so that you don't get water in the basement. So depending on what part of the country that you're in and, you know, what the soil is like, like in, in Texas, in central Texas, we were on limestone, so it's really hard to put in a basement anyway. But, you know, some people are building houses into a big hill, into the side of a hill, and those almost always end up with some water intrusion. It's just very challenging with the heavy rains to not have some water go into a, a house on a hill. So if you can be on the top, you know, top of the grade and not try to do an over-under kind of situation where you're below ground, that can also be helpful or if you're in a part of the country where everybody has a basement, then just really pay particular attention to how that uh, protective uh, barrier is applied. So basement makes total sense. 
with that in mind, would one be better off living in a home that were, let's just say on flat land, but slightly elevated off the ground by like a foot or two rather than being right on top of the ground? Absolutely. And, and then how do you think about some of the, the sustainable practices if, if they play a role in this at all? Like geothermal, a lot of people are excited about where they drill all the way down and use the, I'm going to like botch the scientific explanation of this, but they use the, the heating and cooling of the earth as a more sustainable practice to heat and cool their house. Like, is, is that something that plays a role in this? I love that idea, especially since I kind of had some climate change conversations in my, right in my awareness lately. I don't, I haven't had anybody who's had the opportunity to build a house that's done that. So I don't really know enough about it to, you know, uh, relate that to it. Does that increase your risk for mold or not? So I, I'm not sure, but that would definitely be, be before embarking on that. I think it would be good to get somebody who has had some familiarity with that and, and also some familiarity with mold to see if there's anything that would need to be, you know, I can imagine if you have you know, some of the soils that allow for more shifting in the foundation, it, there could be some risks with, you know, with leaks and that kind of thing in the foundation. I just had somebody who had an issue just with some leaking in their foundation. So I'd be very careful about that in certain soil. Interesting. And so we spent time talking about Texas and also Florida, those warmer climates, but you also start off by saying this is not exclusive to parts of the country that are warm. So let's talk about that. Like this is, where are you finding mold? Where are your, where are you seeing? Coast to coast, you know, I've got patients in, in New York and Connecticut that have had problems, California, it's it, Chicago, it's been all around the country. And a lot of it comes back to the building practices and then people's awareness, like if I could have a Super Bowl commercial, <laughs> like just give me 60 seconds so I can just educate everybody that you really have to get these leaks dried immediately. Even if they seem like they're little leaks, 24 to 48 hours, you have to get fans and dehumidifiers in, or it's highly likely that you're going to end up with mold and then desiccated mycotoxins that are getting into the air and then you know, breathing into the human body. And then all these harsh weather issues that we've been having where, you know, I think pretty much every part of the country now has had some major storms and it's a stress test for the house and, and water will find its way in, unfortunately. So a lot of times those, you know, low grade chronic water exposures will just build, you know, a little bit of mold and then a little bit more mold the next time and turn into a big so you mentioned a little bit of mold. Is a little bit of mold okay? Like how much is too much? Is a little, yeah. you know, just okay or, or no? So it really depends on the type of mold. Like some molds, I just think of that they're, you know, they're allergy and nuisance nuisances and, you know, it's to be expected. And then some of the molds make toxins that are like kryptonite for Superman. They are so, uh, toxic, you know, they're either, you know, used in medicine actually as immunosuppressants for transplant patients or they're used for biological warfare. So a little bit of those really serious molds can 
make people, some people sick very quickly. So you got to know what you're dealing with. So what's in your own personal mold checking and mold cleaning routine at home? Is there something you do daily or weekly to make sure you're on top of it? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dilemma. I end up having an, an inspector come in, I would say on average, like once a year, just to make sure I haven't missed anything. And then if I get worried, I'll just do one of those, the wipes that I can do myself. And then I'm just, I, you know, I'm on, I'm looking under the sinks, watching for the obvious hidden things. Right now I live in a high rise and I'm not sure I'd recommend that because there have been four major leaks in the building that I've been in in the last year. Fortunately, it hasn't been in my stack and in my particular space, but I, I think that between putting in the moisture sensors, just checking all the wet spots and then having an occasional inspection done, I'm happy to say I just had some of the best air quality people in the country come out and do an air quality test on my space. And I, I've got, got two of the IQ error filters and they were like, wow, this is like some of the cleanest air we've seen, which you don't, you know, you don't really know in a high rise where all the fumes and things are coming from neighbors and garages and all that kind of thing. So yes, I'm, I was excited to see not just, you know, the mold, not having mold, but also just really good air quality because the two go together, right? When you have the formaldehyde outgassing from cabinetry and all the different toxins, you know, the flame retardants and that kind of thing from the furniture, it gets to be quite the, the toxic load. So it's good to kind of check and see where you are on a lot of the VOCs, the volatile organic compounds and the particulate matter, because uh, a lot of times these things go together. When you have mold brewing, you also have the VOCs coming up as well. So how might mold show up in one's personal blood work? Unfortunately, unless you specifically test for mycotoxins, it, it doesn't show up easily. So just, you know, the common screenings that people do will not detect it. And then different people have, you know, different responses. So you know, some people, the mold exposure might just start to throw their hormones out of balance. And another person might have some, uh, low white blood cells or low platelets, some people's autoimmune disorders might get triggered. So you can see, I, you know, when I look at people's very comprehensive blood work, I can start to see things that it might make me suspicious of looking for mycotoxins then in the people. Some people will use antibody levels. Uh, so if their antibodies to particular molds are elevated, then they might be suspicious that they're having an exposure, but that's ne not necessarily perfect correlation. Got it. So going back, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to the bathroom because to me, you know, everyone has a bathroom. Hopefully. Everyone's <laughs> okay. got a bathroom. That's where water flow is in it. And it's mm -hmm. a hot spot. Is there any, you know, how should one, you know, the, the shower, how should we clean the shower? Yeah, that's a really good question. So if you got a lot of mildew forming, it's kind of suspicious that you could have a problem with the humidity control in the bathroom. So then I would get to work on how do I, you know, get lower humidity there? Do I need to run fan better or do I need better humidity control in my house in general? So it'd start there because you shouldn't have ongoing mildew. So that's a big problem. I know people are probably like, oh my God, what's she saying? <laughs> but if you got mildew, 
you know, get to work on lowering the humidity. And then, um, of course, using low toxicity cleaners because you don't want to be breathing the fumes of the of the toxic cleaners. And then one mistake that a lot of people make is if they put a porous material in their shower, like limestone, it's got to be resealed annually. And then that the grout should be resealed at least annually. If you see the grout pulling away, you need to get in there, scrape it out, and then put in new grout because that's exactly where the water starts to leak in as well. So in terms of materials, you're always better off with concrete, tile, less porous. Less porous. Use the actual tiles rather than things like, like limestone. And then make sure that you put the sealants on it. And there are some low toxicity sealants as well. And, and going back to the bathroom, something I've read, water pick. Is water pick problematic? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. You know, I suppose if you don't dry it out, it could get to be, if you've got a especially if you have a mold problem in your area, you know, in the water or in, in the air, I guess the mold, the, the water pick could, but you could probably just put a little hydrogen peroxide in there on a regular basis and, and rinse it out. The other thing that's really notorious for molding are washers, those front loading washers. I will never, ever have one again. I've gone to the top loading and then make sure that I open up the soap holder and keep the door open. If you've got a front loader, you've got to really make sure each time you do a load that you leave the door open, that you leave the soap dispenser open, and that you wipe out that inner space that has the gasket in it. Wow, that is interesting. I never would have guessed that because everyone has a front, like I think most people have front loaders. Right. And so you're saying leave it open, leave everything open, let it air out and let clean whatever gross stuff that may come out in your watch. Yeah. Exactly. And if you're, I would even think about getting a new washer if you, if it's pretty musty, because it, it may be past the point of being able to actually clean. So what is the, uh, it makes me feel good because we actually just got a new washer. Okay. <laughs> what is that? You know, most people will say, you know, washers last five years. It, 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 but with this information, I'm thinking there's probably a shorter shelf life. What do you think? I, you know, I, I have a washer at my office that we've had for 10 years now and it's going strong. Yeah. And then at my, you got to clean it. Here. Yeah. And I mean, I, my staff is great too. Like I, they know how they're really good about making sure the lid stays open and that the door is open so it doesn't get moldy. <laughs> well, that's so interesting. Are there, I never would have thought of that. You know, are there other things we're just not thinking of that we should be doing, you know, I'll go to the other, you know, okay, everyone's got a bathroom, everyone's got a kitchen, everyone's got a, a bedroom. Sometimes in New York city, it's all one room. It's called a studio, but like we, we talked about the bathroom. Is there anything else we should touch on in the bathroom before we move on to the bedroom? Not that I can think of. <laughs> okay. So bedroom, any watch outs in the bedroom? Well, you know, it's not on a mold topic, but I, I just think we spend so much time in our bedroom that we should have a natural mattress that we sleep on and, it, you know, have a mattress, zip mattress protector on it and, and an air filter. Like it, you know, while you're sleeping, that's a big part of the, t the time of the day that you're detoxifying. And so you want to be breathing the cleanest air. So you don't want to be the talk, have the toxins from your mattress coming in or from the air. 
I'm curious, so many air filters out there, any specifically you're a fan of? I love the IQ Air. I think it's GC Multi. It's their most expensive one, of course, but it's got a couple of really good charcoal filters in it. So it's very good at getting any of the chemicals and particles and things that are in the air. And then the Air Doctor seems to be pretty good. Austin Air is pretty good, depending on what your budget is. But if budget's not an issue, I would go with the IQ Air. Okay. All right. So we got bathroom, bedroom. We talked about the the washing machine. Kitchen, obviously a leak. Anything else in the kitchen we should be aware of? Yeah, you know, if you have, it's great to have a water filter, but just really make sure that you're changing the filters regularly because those definitely can become problematic. Yeah, change the water filters. Um, and then especially things like behind the refrigerator and behind the dishwasher, those are places that you can get those slow leaks that cause big problems. So if you can get a moisture detector behind the refrigerator, if you're, you know, hooked up to an ice maker, an ice, a water dispenser, and also behind the, the dishwasher, that was actually one of my, the things that happened with my parents, they had a, a slow leak behind their dishwasher and just had a whole wall of mold in the kitchen, between the kitchen and the dining. Got it. So let's say someone is exposed to mold or think they've been exposed loud and clear, get in touch with a professional like yourself. And then in terms of that healing journey, are there certain foods or exercises or lifestyle changes, regimens that one should do after they've been exposed? Yeah, I think eating super clean is always good, but I really recommend a I call it a kind of a modified paleo diet where, you know, you're kind of on the lower carb side of things. So you're not eating gluten and grains and dairy, which I think also end up having a lot of mycotoxins in them. And then a, a lot of good vegetables to help really support the detoxification pathways, a little bit of fruit, some really good proteins, because we need all those building blocks to repair some good fats like avocado and olives, some coconut oil. And then you know, just I, one of the most important things that I find for helping to heal from, from mold is to use a really good form of glutathione. I really like liposomal glutathione. Several that we've got listed on my website that I am a glutathione connoisseur, uh, but it's really important to get the right forms of glutathione that are actually, you know, when I measure in my patients, I see them often or low because their body's kind of uh, using up the glutathione that helps to get the toxins out. And, um, and we really need to get it into an optimal level. So when I check the pre and post, we want to have a product that's actually, you're actually going to see that intracellular glutathione go up. And then I usually use several different types of binders, depending on, you know, the, how the person's gut is tolerating things, but to bind them up and carry them out through the gut. So things like pectisol and charcoal, several of those kinds of things. And then I really like to look at things like methylation pathways. I, that seems to be really critical in who actually gets sicker quicker <laughs> from uh, environmental exposures in general, but especially from mold. So a lot of times taking some methylation supplements is helpful. And then I love the things that help to the body to repair. So things like phosphatidylcholine that help to make cell, healthy cell membranes and things that feed our mitochondria like CoQ10, vitamin B vitamins, carnitine, D-ribose, to give that cellular energy. 
And then depending on how sick somebody is, we might add in things like infrared saunas and hyperbaric. And there's some clay and herbal baths that I like to kind of use the skin and do lymphatic massage and acupuncture. Like they're, you know, depending on, again, what people's budgets are, there's some IVs that I love with um, the IV phosphatidylcholine and NAD. But a lot of people can get better uh, just by having a clean diet and getting out of the mold exposure, you know, really lowering the environmental toxins that they're being exposed to on a day-to-day basis. When people are really sick, I mean, I think that's part of what my journey was, is I got really sick. And it helped me to learn that even when you have some pretty severe neurological injury going on and autoimmune conditions flared, that it's possible to heal, just fully heal and maybe even be better than when you started because you figured out some of your glitches and (laughs) how your body works. Yeah. Talk about your personal story. I I think it's powerful. And like that process, how long it was for you and your journey to being one of the go-tos in terms of helping people who are dealing with mold. Yeah. Well, I've had a couple run-ins with mold. I guess I had to learn different aspects. I learned best by experiences, I guess. But the first one, mold was really hardly on the map. I had gone to an environmental health conference that Dr. Ray had put on, and they were just kind of introducing the topic. It was the first time I even had heard that mold could do something other than cause an infection or, you know, cause allergies. And a few months later, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been missing this in my patients, you know, starting to learn how to test for it. And then that's when that flashing was going awry in my house. And both both my son and I were starting to experience some experience, uh, some symptoms from it. So I just started getting more and more tired. Like by Monday morning, I was like, how am I going to get through my day? My hair was falling out all over the place. And I had so much just generalized pain in my body that I, it was hard to, for my kids to even hug me. And then the scariest thing was that I started to lose the strength in my right arm. So just even like holding a glass, full glass to drink, sometimes it would slip out of my hand. And so I got really, I got really lucky and that I have a patient who had really helped to I was sitting with her and this is the woo side of me, hardcore scientist, but also uh, highly believe in in the power of intuition and, and the power of love. So I had this patient that had really helped and she, you know, loved me so much that she got the intuition that, that I was sick, even though I thought I had it all together in that appointment. Like I didn't think she could tell that I was sick. And when we were finished with her appointment, she was like, she leaned over the table. She's this beautiful little woman. And She's like, Dr. Sippy, I can tell you're sick. And I think you have toxic mold in your house. With <laughs> enough work, I'm going to come to your house at, when you get off. Like she was insistent. It wasn't, would you like me to? Or would it be okay? She's like, I'm coming. <laughs> and she's able to sense when mold is present. So she came to my house and she walked in. And a few minutes later, she's like, I can tell you have mold in your house and you have chitomium. So chitomium makes something called chuticlobosin. That's a very serious neurotoxin. And uh, she's like, don't take any of your belongings, get your kids and don't come back kind of thing. <laughs> and don't take very much, you know, don't take very much with you. And 
So I followed those instructions and within a couple of weeks, I started feeling better and really started learning more about my detox pathways. And it took multiple rounds of testing the house because I didn't know the right, you know, I started out with the plates, which really don't tell you much at all. And then finally got to the point where I learned about the ERMI testing and got enough samples that we finally caught the chitomium. She was exactly right. And so unfortunately with chitomium, it's, uh, it grows these little claws into things. So <laughs> literally, uh, so it's very difficult to clean. Some of the molds, you can clean things with the HEPA-Vax and that kind of thing. But I ended up not being able to keep many of my clothes or shoes or furniture, those kinds of things that are hard to get the little claws out of there. And the amazing thing was, I, you know, I kind of also believe that part of why my body started uh, breaking down and screaming at was because my son was getting sick. I, you know, that kind of mother's instinct. I, I didn't really know what was going on with him. And within a few months, he was so much better too. Wow. Let's close on food. <laughs> My favorite topic. Always a big topic. How should we be thinking about molds and, and foods? Molds everywhere. Mold can be present in food. How, how do you think about food and how we should be looking at our, you know, our grocery cart, if you will? with the lens of mold and under the lens of food and, and mold. Yeah, I, it's for me, that's, it can be important, but usually it's like the, the way that the body processes the mold and food isn't as significant as when we breathe it in and the, it, the mycotoxins in, in the air. That being said, some of the, you know, moldiest foods are the grains. I find a lot of people do better off grains and some of it may be because of the mycotoxin levels in the grains in addition to all the pesticides and fumigants and things that are used in the, the grains. So I love a grain-free diet for many reasons. The next thing that's really a great thing to be aware of is how much uh, mold can be in coffee. And so some of the brands are really starting to check each batch for how much, which mold is in the coffee and not sell the one, you know, really curate the low mold coffee. And so if you're a coffee drinker, I think it's a really good idea to support the brands that are putting the extra attention into feeding you mold in your coffee. I love my friend Dave Asprey's new Danger Coffee. So kudos to Dave. Yes. Very excited about that new brand. I get to see Dave today, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah he's in Austin? Him, yeah, yeah. I'll tell, tell him, him, him I said hello, and I just plugged Danger Coffee. <laughs> is it so really is great. I buy it. Dave it can look in Shopify. I buy Danger Coffee. <laughs> and that's great because you're getting low-toxicity coffee. Good job. And then one of the things also is chocolate. You know, that's... My, that's one of the things that I love is dark chocolate. And I could, unfortunately, I think, you know, some brands do better than others with, with that. And I'll get a little warning sign from some of them. So, um, okay. So we got to stay on chocolate for a second. If we're going to close, we're going to close on chocolate. There's no <laughs> one, everyone loves a, a, some good chocolate. Are there some brands you like in terms of chocolate? I love the Hue brand, H-U. Yeah, yes. the Carp family. They're in Austin too. My favorite yeah. people are in Austin. Yeah. Well, see, so you now maybe you need to change the plans and come to Austin. Yeah. Still love Austin. We'll visit. Just not, we'll always visit. Yeah. I get, you know, I guess I just have to, the, 
hue is the one that I can consistently eat and not feel the inflammation come up in my body. I think because I've been through the mold exposure multiple times and have gotten my, you know, levels down that if I get a little uptick, my, my body lets me know. And so I just feel more inflammation about my body. And I think I'll stick to that one because I, I love their, you know, their premise with it being organic and not loading it with sugar and all the delicious flavors that they have. Well, I, I love it. We'll close there with two of my favorite brands. I'll have my huge chocolate gems and my coffee from, from Dave Asprey's Danger Coffee. And thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for getting the awareness out on this. I think it's so important for people to consider this both as a preventive, like really make sure you don't get yourself in trouble. And then if you're having any health issue, consider whether you've got a mold exposure. 